Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. A little bit past the midpoint of book three of his poem on the nature of things, Lucretius is going to make an entire set of arguments aimed at showing that the mind, the animus, and the spirit, the vital spirit, the anima, both closely connected to each other in us human beings, are in fact mortal as is the body that they are interconnected with. And this is not just going to hold for us human beings. This will hold for every animate thing like animals as well. And it's not just that they're mortal, that they will have an end to them. It's also that they have a beginning. And so this Latin phrase, nativos et mortalis essa, this being there, animos animasque. So the plural of minds and bodies, minds and bodies are born. They are things that arise, they come into existence, and they are things that die, things whose existence ends. So they exist or they have being for a certain amount of time, but both sides are actually, you could say, bookended by non-existence. And he begins by saying first, note that both of these things, the mind and the spirit are to be embraced under one name. When I proceed to demonstrate that spirit is mortal, you must understand this applies equally to mind. Why? Because the two are conjoined to constitute a single substance. That is our psyche, you could say, or whatever, however you want to call it, right? And he begins by saying, first of all, as I've shown, spirit, mind, is flimsy stuff right? It's easily blown around, you could say. It's composed of very, very fine, tiny particles. So, you know, what is the upshot of this? It's not going to exist on its own because if it's outside of the body, the body is its vessel and it's just going to be easily blown away. He gives the example of, you know, water flows out in all directions from broken vessels and the fluid departs and mist and smoke vanish into thin air. Be assured the spirit is similarly dispelled and vanishes far more speedily because its particles are smaller and is sooner dissolved into its component atoms once it's been let loose from the human frame, which is its death, its ending, right? It doesn't remain in existence. So that's an interesting argument that he's making there. And then he'll make a much more extended argument or discussion talking about how the body and the mind both grow up together and they grow old together. And he's going to give a lot of interesting examples here. He says that with the weak and delicate frame of wavering childhood goes a like infirmity of judgment. The mind is not really operating that well in an infantile or childish body. The robust vigor of ripening years is accompanied by steadier resolve, mature strength of mind. Later, when the body is palsied by the potent forces of age and the limbs have collapsed with blunted vigor, the understanding limps, the tongue rambles, the mind totters, everything weakens and gives way at the same time. So the, the body gets weaker, the mind gets weaker, the body gets stronger, the mind gets stronger. 
stronger. And it can go the other way as well. And he's going to give a whole bunch of examples of how the mind is affected by the body and vice versa, both for good and for bad. So he says, as the body suffers the horrors of disease and the pangs of pain, we see the mind stabbed with anguish, grief, and fear. What is more natural that it should have a share in death? In the body's illness, the mind wanders, right? And then he says, here's another example. When you drink wine, the pervasive power of wine, as he says, when it's entered into a person and its glow is dispersed through their veins, the limbs are overcome with heaviness, the legs stagger and stumble. But it's not just that. His speech is slurred, right? His mind besotted. His eyes swim. There is a crescendo of shouts, hiccups, quarreling, and all the other symptoms follow in due order. And then he says, why is this the case? Well, because the wanton wildness of the wine has the power to dislodge, as he says, the vital spirit within the body. So a more potent attack would make an end of both of them, the body and the spirit and the mind. He says, this happens sometimes when somebody has epilepsy. He falls as though struck by lightning and foams at the mouth, right? The raving occurs, why? Because mind and spirit are dislodged. And as I've explained, split up and scattered this way and that by the same poison, right? And then he says, you know, think about medicine. Medicine positively can improve the body and thereby improve the mind. And this can go both ways as well. We can engage in, you know, you could say cognitive or emotional medicine and thereby benefit the body as well because they are so connected with each other. So he goes on and he says that we often see a man pass away little by little and lose all sensation of life limb by limb. First the toes and toenails, then the feet and legs die. After that, the imprint of icy death steals by slow degrees through the other members. Since the vital spirit is dispersed and does not come out all at once in an entirety, it must be regarded as mortal. So the fact that the mind and the body are so closely connected as to affect each other, and you might say share the same fate, means that the mind is going to be mortal. He goes on and he says that there really isn't any single location of the mind or the spirit in the body, right? So he says, you know, if it were so that the mind could shrink itself through the body and draw its parts together and withdraw sensibility from every limb, then wherever it's concentrated ought to show a exceptional degree of sensibility. But we, we don't see this. Instead, what we see is a lack, a loss of sensibility, and it's clear that the mind is itself dying, right? And he goes on and he says, the mind again is one part of a person and stays fixed at a particular spot, no less than the ears and eyes and other senses, but it's deriving its vigor and its vitality from the conjunction with the body. Without body, the mind alone cannot perform these vital motions. And what we see is that as parts of the body are dying away, so is the mind in many respects as well. He'll talk a little bit later about this and note that, you know, when people are losing limbs or stuff like that, he's got some pretty graphic things about warfare and chariots and stuff like that, or snakes being cut into bits. So long as there's still some of the vital spirit within the parts, they're moving around, but then that goes away very quickly, which shows that it's diffused throughout the body, right? It's not 
concentrated just in one little node or spot or something like that. Now, another interesting argument that he gives is more of a, if this was the case, then we would expect this to happen. And he talks about the depiction of the soul apart from the body. For example, in Greek myths, when people go down to the, the afterlife and they can hear things and see things and even smell things, you know, the dead in Homer come and taste the blood that Odysseus is laid into a trough for them. And Lucretius is going to say, well, that doesn't actually make any sense, right? You don't have minds going around, spirits going around and sensing things without the sense organs of the body. He says, our hand or eye or nostrils in isolation from us can't experience sensation or even exist. In a very short time, they rot away. So mind cannot exist apart from the body and from the human being himself or herself, who is, as it were, a vessel for it. So you're, you're just not going to have what is being depicted. Uh, you don't have senses apart from the body. He also considers some ideas that people have, you know, among the philosophers, uh, the Platonists would be particularly a target for this. The idea being that the spirit enters into the body at birth. And notice that he doesn't say at conception or anything like that. The, the idea back then was generally at birth. And he says that you're not going to get that happening. And, and why not? Well, for a couple different reasons. He says, if the spirit is by nature immortal and is slipped into the body at birth, then why don't we have any memory of an earlier existence? No traces left by antecedent events. And this is directly targeting the Platonists, uh, the Pythagoreans, and some other uh, groups that thought that the soul engages in a sort of reincarnation or transmigration, moving from body to body to body. And I mean, this is actually a good objection. The Platonists do say, well, you have to be reminded of the things because you forgot it. Well, why'd you forget it? <laughs> that, that isn't adequately answered. Just saying, well, you go into a body and the body makes you forget. It's not really a answer to the question, is it? He also says something kind of interesting. So if we assume that reincarnation would happen not just for human beings, but for animals, as is typically the case when people believe in that, then we'd have a bit of a problem because animals, more than human beings, seem to have rather fixed natures that are, at least from the Epicurean perspective that Lucretius is developing here, dependent on the constituent parts of their bodies. And so if we could have souls or minds or whatever we want to call it, spirits entering into a wide range of animal bodies, then the animals wouldn't actually have their determinate ways of behaving. You know, he talks about the hound would turn tail before the onset of the antlered stag instead of actually going and attacking the stag, which is what they do because they have, you know, plenty of fire in them, right? The hawk would flee trembling through the gusty air at the coming of the dove. And then he says something else really interesting. Human beings would be witless and brute animals would be rational. And that isn't the case, at least as far as Lucretius is concerned. So we don't have souls entering spirits or minds, whatever we're going to call them, entering into bodies, having existed before with their own characteristics. We don't have them entering into bodies at birth. 
we have them instead developing with the bodies from their birth onward. And he actually has another kind of funny thing that he says here as well. It's surely ludicrous to suppose spirits are standing by at the mating and birth of animals, a numberless number of immortals on the lookout for mortal frames, jostling and squabbling to get in first and establish themselves most firmly. Or is there perhaps an established compact that first come shall be first served without any trial of strength between spirit and spirit? He's saying this can't be the case, right? That's not how things actually work. And then he says another thing that I think is a different argument. It doesn't make sense to couple things that are totally unlike each other with each other in the way that the mind and the body appear to be interconnected. If the mind is actually eternal or deathless and the body is broken up into its constituent parts and it dies and stuff like that, then there really can't be an interconnection of these two radically different and distinct kinds of whatever we want to call them, substances, entities. Uh, instead, what we experience is that we are really this interconnection of mind and spirit on the one hand and body on the other hand. So, you know, that is an interesting argument. And then the final one, one that he makes is that there are everlasting things spirit and mind just isn't one of them. He says there can be only three kinds of everlasting objects. The first, owing to the absolute solidity of their substance, can repel blows and let nothing penetrate them so as to unknit their close texture from within. What is that? Atoms. Atom literally means can't be cut, can't be split. Now, of course, we know that atoms can be. So we might talk about subatomic particles or something like that, right? So spirit isn't that. I mean, it's composed of a bunch of atoms because everything's composed of atoms, but it's not an atom. And then he says the second kind can last forever because it's immune from blows. Such is empty space, which remains untouched and unaffected by any impact. Soul or mind or spirit is not empty space. It's atoms instead, very fine atoms. So that's not the case. And then he says last is that which has no available place surrounding it into which its matter can disperse and disintegrate. It's for this reason the sum totality of the universe is everlasting and having no space outside it into which the matter can escape and no matter that can enter and, and disintegrate it by the force of the impact. So the totality of the universe, well, that's not what a spirit or mind is. A spirit or mind is a tiny little thing inside the universe. So it doesn't fall into any of these three categories. And then he says, well, some people might say the spirit is immortal because it's shielded by life-preserving power it's unassailed by forces hostile to its survival or because such forces, if they threaten, are repelled before we're conscious of the threat. And he says, that doesn't make any sense. Common sense actually tells us that this isn't the case. Because the spirit participates in the ailments of the body, we know that the spirit is affected by things. And there's no reason to think that it's immortal because it has life-preserving powers. That's essentially just begging the question, you know, why does it survive past death? Well, because it's immortal. That's just a circular argument. And so Lucretius is saying it's, it's just a bad argument right there. So what this means is that the mind or spirit has a beginning. It has an end. It exists during the time that it's actually there, but it will eventually break down and its breakdown will more or less coincide with the breakdown and death of the body. 
Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.